0: God's people said, Amen. Uh, let me invite you this morning to take God's word and turn to the gospel according to John, chapter number 20, as we are going to focus in just a little while on verses 11 through 18. But while you're turning, I want to ask you a question. And the question is this When you have great news, who is the first person you share it with. Uh, most of us, it's our spouse. Uh, if it's great news, I share it with Shelly. Uh, but sometimes it goes outside of the immediate circle. I remember when Shelly gave birth to Kennedy, uh, most of our family was there. Uh, but the first person we told, outside of those at the hospital, was her granny. Her granny was unable to be there, so we called her on the telephone and told her uh, that her great-granddaughter had been born, and it tickled her pink. The birth of a child is good news, and it's good news that you want to share. But what would you do if you had the greatest news that the world would ever hear? Who would you tell first if you had an option? Well, Christ did have an option. 2,000 years ago when he was raised from the dead, he could have first appeared to any person in the world that he wanted to. He could have chosen someone with great influence, someone from a well-known town, someone with a sterling reputation, but he didn't. Whenever he decided to show himself after the resurrection to anyone in the world, He chose someone we may have overlooked. He chose someone who had no political influence whatsoever. He chose someone whose testimony was not even admissible in the court of law because of their gender. He chose a woman. He chose someone who was from such a small town of insignificance. The scholars debate where it was actually located. There's no agreement on where this city or town was located at. He even chose someone he knew would be misrepresented and misunderstood throughout the centuries. Most people, when they hear her name, they automatically associate her with (laughs) prostitution or adultery. They think, wrongly, that she was the adulteress who was caught in the very act in John chapter 8 although scripture does not even include a name there. Some believe that she was a prostitute. As a matter of fact, in the 17th centuries, uh, the Catholic Church founded Magdalene Houses for women who were seeking to escape the life of prostitution and to find help. But there is no evidence whatsoever that she was an adulteress or even a prostitute. How would you like that attached with your name throughout the centuries? But she did, however, have a dark past. She was a woman whom Jesus cast out seven devils out of her life. Who is this person? The first person to see Jesus after he was resurrected from the dead? It was a woman by the name of Mary Magdalene. Now, understand. Mary probably came into contact with Jesus during his Galilean ministry. We're not exactly sure when she met Jesus, but we know that she did. And we know that when she met Jesus initially, Jesus cast seven demonic spirits out of her and she became a follower of Jesus. We also know from Scripture that a lot of Jesus' travel was paid for by Mary Magdalene. She helped supply the needs of Christ and his followers as they traveled and she followed closely. She had a front row seat to his ministry. She heard his teaching and she saw his life. And when he was condemned to die, Mary Magdalene had a front row seat at the cross of Calvary when Jesus was nailed to it. She saw the blood flow down his body and dripped to the ground, staining the sand crimson red. She was close enough to where she could hear the Savior seven different times speak from the cross, initially crying out for forgiveness for those who had nailed him to the cross. She stood beside of Jesus' mother Mary when Jesus looked down from the cross and he looked at Mary and John and he gave John to Mary and Mary to John. And She was there when she heard the triumphant cry of the victor when he cried his final words before he died, it is finished. She felt the earth begin to tremble as Jesus breathed his last and the earth quaked beneath her. And then she observed as Joseph of Arimathea and, and, and Nicodemus took the lifeless body of Jesus Christ that had been taken down from the cross and they took his body to a tomb, a sad funeral procession. They followed as they carried the body of Jesus to a little unspecified garden just outside the city walls of Jerusalem. And the Bible says that when Nicodemus and Joseph prepared the body, Mary Magdalene and the others set across the tomb and they watched. They watched as they washed his hands and his feet and wiped the blood from his brow. They watched as they wiped his torso and cleaned the, the, the place where the soldier had speared his side and burst his heart and out with came blood and water. And, and as they watched, as only women can watch with meticulous attention to detail, they left that day thinking, They did the best they could, but they just did not do his body justice. So what we'll do is this. We'll go home. We'll gather up all the spices that we have. And when the Sabbath is over with, when Saturday passes, we'll go back to the tomb on Sunday morning. And we'll take the clothing off his body. And we'll wash his body properly. And we'll anoint his body properly. And we will get his body ready for burial properly. And so they go back home. They wait that Sabbath day, that long Saturday where each moment felt like an hour. Each hour felt like a day. And then finally, Sunday morning arrives. I can see Mary and the others as they hurriedly gather their spices together and walk along the roadway to get to that garden to get to that tomb and as they're going they're wondering exactly how in the world the stone is going to be rolled away for for us but when they get there they find that the stone's already been rolled away and they peek in and when they peek in Mary sees that the tomb is empty and Jesus is gone now we would think she would be excited but she panics Terror grips her heart. Fear clouds her mind. And so she runs to where she knows the disciples are. John 20 tells us that she runs to Peter and John and tells them, they've taken away my Lord and I don't know where they've laid him. And so Peter and John jump up quickly and they take off running. Now, John was the better athlete than Peter because the Bible says he did outrun Peter when he got there. But it didn't do him any good because John was timid. He was backwards. He gets to the tomb, and he's afraid to go in. He wants to, but he just can't bring himself to do it. Then here comes Peter huffing and puffing behind him at the garden. And He gets there, and there's nothing timid about him. He runs in, and he looks, and all he sees is the clothing that they had wrapped Jesus in laying there. and A napkin that they had placed on his face had been taken off and folded neatly and placed on the slab where his head was. And John finally comes in, and the Bible says when John saw it, he believed. But Peter didn't. And yet, for some reason, unbeknownst to us, after they see the empty tomb and they see the empty slab where Jesus had laid, the Bible says that they went back to their house. But Mary remains at the tomb. She remains at the tomb, not excited, not happy, not joyful. But she's depressed. She's distraught, she's confused, she's disappointed, she's filled with sorrow, but her life would soon change, because the Bible tells us that she has an encounter unlike any other, beginning in verse 11 of John chapter 20. It says, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb." And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, Why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Suppose him to be the gardener. She said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But I go to my brothers and say to them, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. This is the very first Post resurrection appearance that Jesus makes. And he makes his appearance to Mary Magdalene. And in this appearance, we find how the resurrection of Jesus Christ transforms not just Mary's life, but all of our lives as well. And so, what I want to do this morning is quickly, I just want to share with you two ways that this empty tomb and this encounter transformed Mary's life and how the same Jesus who is still alive and well today transforms your life and my life through the resurrection from the dead. How does it work? What does Jesus' resurrection do to us that transforms us? Well, first, the resurrection confronts us. Now, we know the resurrection has happened in verses 1 through 10 of John 20. But when we see Mary... We find her in verse 11, weeping outside the tomb. And then we find her weeping as she stooped to look into the tomb. So outside of the tomb, she's weeping. Inside of the tomb, she's weeping. And her weeping is evidence of the great problem of her heart and the great problem of your heart and the great problem of my heart. And it is the problem of doubt. She is doubting. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, if you notice, twice she's confronted about her doubt. First, she's confronted by the angels, and then she's confronted by the Savior. The angels ask her when she goes into the tomb, and I think there's just something um, comical in a sense about this. She walks in, and the angels are sitting where Jesus' body had laid. One angel sitting at his where his feet were. One angel is sitting where his head was and they're sitting there and she comes in weeping and they ask her the question, woman, why are you weeping? That question was a little bit of a rebuke. You ought to be happy. This is what you've been waiting for. He's alive. He's he's not here. Why are you weeping? And then her answer and her response is one of doubt and confusion. They've taken away my Lord and I don't know where they've laid him. That's the first rebuke for her doubt. But then the second one comes from Jesus himself because Jesus now appears to Mary inside the tomb and she doesn't know it's Jesus. She thinks he's the gardener. Now, why? Well, a couple of reasons, maybe. The last time she saw Jesus, he was beaten beyond recognition. He was a bloody pulp. uh, And you could not even tell he was a man. Isaiah said his visage is marred more than any other man. But also, it was early in the morning. It was dark in the tomb. And she could maybe just see a silhouette of someone standing in the corner. And also, she's overcome by sadness. Uh, Many times, when you have great moments of sadness in your life, you really can't remember who it was that's standing next to you. You don't remember who it was that was there or who was standing there, who hugged you at the funeral home or who didn't hug you at the funeral home. You might remember some, but not everybody because you're overwhelmed with sorrow. Well, that's what's going on in Mary's life at this moment. And so she Jesus is standing in the tomb with her and what does he say to her? The same thing. Woman, why are you weeping? Why are you doubting? Why are you sad? And her response to Jesus is very ironic. She says, again, they've taken away my lord Don't know where they laid him. And she even accuses him. If you've taken him away, then tell me. I'll come and I'll take him. In other words, if you're afraid the Romans are going to come get you, if you're afraid there's a war going to break out over him, if you'll secretly give me the body, I'll take care of the body. I'll bury him where nobody knows where he's at, and your headaches will be over with. Oh, what irony. She's speaking to the living Lord and thinking he is dead. But my question is, where does her doubt come from? What was it that caused her to doubt? Well, what caused her doubt is oftentimes the same thing that causes our doubt. See, doubt sometimes springs up because of circumstances. Mary's faith wavered because of the circumstances she found herself in. Her master had been crucified. The one whom she followed had been killed. And she stood there and watched him die. And now when she came to honor him with proper burial, now he's gone. The body is not there. And she doesn't know where in the world it is at. And now based on her circumstances, she is going to judge the faithfulness of Jesus. And aren't we the same way at times? We oftentimes catch ourselves judging the faithfulness of Christ, not based on what he has said or who he is, but based primarily on how things are going in my life. When I get a good, healthy uh, report from the doctor, I get a good bill of health from the doctor, I feel that God is faithful and on the throne. But when the test comes back and I have cancer, then there is something in me that wants me to doubt the goodness of God. When I gather with my family and all of my family are intact, I want to say God is so great and God is so good. But when I have a loved one die, God forbid I have a child die, then we are tempted to doubt the goodness and the grace and the and the and the love of God. Past abuse, someone going through a bitter divorce, A prayer that you prayed that you just knew God was going to say yes to and you didn't get a yes answer to it. All of these circumstances that come into our lives at times, if we are not careful and we live by sight and not by faith, we'll have the same doubt in our heart that Mary had in her heart as well. William Cooper was right when he said, Judge not the Lord by feeble means, but trust him for his grace. For behind a frowning providence... There hides a smiling face. Her circumstances caused her doubt. But secondly, ignorance also causes doubt. Twice she says, I don't know where they've laid him. She tells Peter and John in verse two, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've laid him. She says again in verse three, they've taken away my Lord. I do not know where they laid him. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. You know, we like to be a people in the know, don't we? I mean, if there's something, sometimes people don't want to know, but if there's something going on with my body, I want to know about it. One of the longest periods of my life uh, was the period between when my doctor found out my heart was in an abnormal rhythm to the day when I found out what exactly was going on with it. Uh, There was just something uneasy about knowing something was up but really not knowing what it was. You see, when I'm in the know and I know what's going on, I feel like I've got the power to fix it. I can can attack it. I can stand against it if I only know. Well, Mary didn't know what was going on here because she was confused. She was ignorant of what was going on. God was working and she didn't even know it. But thirdly, sometimes doubt arises from forgetfulness. Do you know Jesus had told his disciples time and time and time again that this was going to happen? Jot this down. John chapter 10, verse 17 and 18. Jesus says, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again if she had remembered the words of Jesus, she would have known that day at Calvary that the Roman soldiers did not kill Jesus. No, he laid down his life that day. If she would have remembered his words, she would have known that it was not the cross that killed Jesus that day, but that it was Jesus choosing to lay down his life that day. And if she would have seen that it was Jesus who chose to die who lay down his life, she would have remembered what else he said. That he also had the authority and the power to take it back up again. Mark chapter 8, verse 31 and 32. This before the crucifixion, Scripture says, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed after Three days, rise again. And the Bible says, and he said this plainly. Plainly. In almost every resurrection account, you have this, that as of yet, they didn't remember what he said to them when he told them he had to be resurrected. And you know how oftentimes do we allow doubt to creep into our heart and into our life? Because we simply forget what God has said in his word Hey, if Mary had believed and the disciples had remembered His word and believed it, Saturday would have been the longest day of their life for a good reason. If they had only remembered His word, there would have been a large crowd gathered at that garden tomb that morning, in spite of all the Roman soldiers who were there, because He had told them on the third day He would rise again from the dead. So let me ask you something this morning. If you're here and you are not a follower of Jesus, if you're here and you are not a Christian, you're not a Christian because you doubt God's word. You have not placed your faith and your trust in Christ. And so my question is this, what is the source of your doubt? Why is it that you doubt the gospel? Why is it that you doubt that Christ died for you and was raised again to life? Why the doubt in trusting the gospel? For some people, it might be hypocrites. You doubt Christ because so many of his followers are not like him. You live a moral life, maybe more so than most professing Christians. And you think that because of their lifestyle and your morality is better than theirs, if they get to heaven, you're okay. Because of that, you've yet to place your faith and trust in the gospel. For some people, it could just be the pleasures of sin are so great. You don't want to trust in Christ. We talked to a man one time, and he told us flat out and honest, listen, I'm having too much fun being a sinner. And the only way that I will trust Jesus is, he's going to have to take the fun out of sin for me. He's going to have to change my heart. He was open, he was honest about it, and he was right about it. For some people, it's pride. You will not bow before the king of glory call upon his name. I don't know what your, the source of your doubt and unbelief, why you haven't trusted in the gospel yet. I don't know why, but my prayer is today is that the same resurrected Lord who overcame Mary's doubt is the same one who will overcome your doubt and your unbelief this morning now while the gospel is being proclaimed. You see, Mary, was confronted just as Jesus confronts us today with our doubt and unbelief. He's saying to you, why don't you believe? Why don't you trust? Why haven't you placed your faith in Christ? But thankfully, the resurrection does more than merely confront us. Because if the gospel just confronts us, if the resurrection just confronts us and that's it, it's like a doctor who only diagnoses our illness without prescribing the cure. But the resurrection not only diagnoses the illness, unbelief, it also prescribes the cure as well. Because the gospel, the resurrection not only confronts us, but the resurrection also calms us. Because the same Lord who confronted Mary is the same one who calmed Mary. The same one who convicted her and us is the same one who cleansed her. And the one who rebuked her is the one who restores her Because look here what happens. After she says, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you laid him and I'll take him away. Verse 16 is one of the sweetest passages in all of scripture. Jesus said to her, Mary, Mary. You see, we find something in the sovereign, resurrected Jesus that we can find nowhere else. We find what Mary and the disciples found. What, what do we find in Jesus? Well, we find that Jesus gives peace. With one word, Mary. And she knows it's him. One word, Mary. And immediately doubt is gone, hope is restored, faith is born, and joy penetrates into her heart with just one word. Why? easy. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. They know my voice. I know them and they love me and they follow me. She knew the voice of the Savior. Can I say this? Just as in John 1 when scripture says, never a man spoke like him. When I was a 10-year-old boy sitting in this very church house, the Spirit of God convicted me, called me by name, not audibly, but through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I had never had anything like that happen in my life. What happened? I was born again. My heart was changed My disposition was changed. I grew up knowing about the gospel my whole life, but that night I believed the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I would never be the same. And Mary, when she realizes it, she does what we probably would have done. She clings to him. She grabs him, and she's not going to let him go. And Jesus has to tell her, Mary, don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. In other words, what he's saying is, Mary, you can let me go right now. I'm not going to leave. If you walk out of the tomb and come back, I'm not going to be gone. I've got some more business I've got to take care of here. What I need you to do, if you will, turn me loose, go to the disciples, and tell them I'm going to ascend to my father and to their father, to my God and to their God. I'm going to appear to them, Mary, so you can leave me here. And now, peace floods her heart and floods her life. She's no longer weeping. She's no longer sorrowful. Her life's no longer in turmoil. And there is nothing that can explain the peace that God has for those who are His. Scripture says it passes all understanding. But you know, Jesus not only gives us peace, Jesus also gives us grace. I read this this week, and it, 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 every time I read it, it fills my heart with hope. It humbles me, and it causes me to praise him for being a gracious Lord. Look what he says. Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. He says, but go to my brothers. Go to my brothers. There may not be a more gracious statement in all scripture that Jesus refers to his disciples at this moment as my brothers he is saying of them that they share in his sonship as Paul will tell us that we are heirs of God and joint heirs of of Jesus Christ Hebrews tells us he's not ashamed to call them brothers and that blows my mind because these disciples earned if anybody earned the right for Christ to be ashamed of them; these disciples did. Can I tell you what their last few hours had consisted of? First, it consisted of empty boasts. One person had said, "These other guys are going to leave you, but I won't. I'll even die for you." That was Peter. What did Jesus say to Peter? Oh, "Before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times." And sure enough, he did. Jesus said to the disciples, they will smite the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus goes with them a few hours earlier to Gethsemane to pray. And he tells them to watch and pray lest they enter into temptation. And three separate times Jesus goes off to pray and he comes back. And you know what he finds every one of them doing? Sleeping. They won't even stay awake while Jesus is praying. Whenever they arrest Jesus, sure, Peter tries to play macho man and cut off the, uh, the, the servant of the high priest's ear, but Jesus attaches the ear back on, and when they lead him away as a criminal out of Gethsemane's garden, the disciples scatter into hiding, lest they be next. As a matter of fact, only one disciple was able to get inside of the trial, and that was John, because he was known to the high priest. Peter was able to get close enough to where he can make eye contact with Jesus, but he wasn't close enough to, to get inside like John. But he was there when he looked at Jesus and the rooster crowed. And he remembered what Jesus had said, and so he leaves goes out and weeps bitterly because he had denied his Lord. Listen, and now these men are not sitting around looking at their clock thinking, okay, it's six in the morning. Jesus is going to resurrect. Let's go down there and see our Lord. They're sitting there in fear, afraid that they are going to be next. The next knock on the door could be the Roman soldiers coming to get us. They don't believe he's resurrected. So that room, It's filled with failures, boasters, doubters, put it plain and simple, it's filled with sinners. It's filled with those who have sinned against Jesus. And yet the resurrected Jesus does not say, I am coming to bring judgment upon them, but he says of them, go tell my brothers. Do you know what this room here this morning is filled with? This room this morning is filled with people just like those disciples. We have all sinned against our resurrected Lord. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. We have all sinned against the God of heaven. And we all deserve judgment. We all deserve hell. We all deserve wrath. But the good news of the resurrection is the one whom we've sinned against. The one who has been raised from the dead is gracious and kind and loving and merciful towards sinners like you and sinners like me. That's our only hope. Go to my brothers. What's he going to say? Tell them I'm ascending to my father and your father. Do you see how he's identifying with them? He's not ashamed to call them brothers. To my God and to your God. What would Christ do in his ascended role? I'll tell you what he'll do. He'll represent those sinners he has had grace upon on this earth. That's what he's doing now. He's as alive today as he was then. But he has ascended and he's mediating for you and for me, our advocate before the Father, assuring that we make it to heaven. He gives grace. He gives peace. But he gives confidence as well. I love the change that you see in Mary. Because one, she lets go of Jesus. You notice how she believes his word now? She's not clinging to him anymore, she lets go of him. Verse 18 says, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. Now imagine the trip. The one she makes in verse two, the Bible says she ran and went to Simon and Peter and the other disciples. That was not a fun trip. That was a bad trip. Could you see her as she runs with panic and fear? And she knocks on the door and she runs in. And immediately they look at her and they can see the fear in her eyes and the panic in her voice as it trembles. And she says, they've taken away the body of the Lord and we don't know where they've laid him. What a trip. Now. Just a few hours maybe later, she's going to make the same trip. But what a difference the resurrection makes. Now, when she runs to where they're going, she's excited, not fearful. Now, whenever she runs into the room, they do not see terror on her face or hear a tremble in her voice. They look at her and the fear is gone and the panic is gone and it's replaced with excitement. It's replaced with joy. It's replaced with happiness as she announces to everyone, I have seen the Lord. What makes the difference? The resurrection of Jesus Christ makes all the difference in the world. And you know, every one of us who are here today, we are here Those of us who are saved, we are saved today because there was a moment in our life when we go from hearing the story of the gospel, knowing the story of the gospel, to actually believing the story of the gospel. That makes all the difference. And today, the difference between those who are saved and those who are not it's an empty tomb. I said this morning, sent a text to one of my pastor brethren. I sent him a text and I said, listen, we go today armed with the Bible, the Holy Spirit, and an empty tomb. That's all we've got. And that's all we need. All we need is what the Word of God says, the Holy Spirit, and an empty tomb in Jerusalem. Isn't it amazing? That we must believe in a Savior who has died, but in one who is not dead in order to be saved. That's the great paradox of Christianity. Our Savior has died, but he is not dead. And so today, the hope of Christianity, the hope of our life, is an empty tomb. It was Mary's hope, it was the disciples' hope, it's my hope, it's your hope. Don't take the empty tomb away. When I walk into a hospital room with a man who's dying, and he's an unbeliever. The doctor says he has maybe days, hours to live. I've got one thing that I can offer him. and That's an empty tomb. That's the only hope that he's got. When I talk to an unbeliever out on the street, and they ask me, Justin... How can I be saved? What must I do to be saved? I've got one thing to offer that person. And it's not baptism. It's not deeds. It's not morality. It's not works. It's not do this and you will be saved. I've got one thing to offer that person. And that is an empty tomb. And I stand in a room with a family and the doctors have done everything they can do and their loved one is getting ready to go out into eternity. Beloved, I've got one thing and one thing only I can offer that family. That is an empty tomb. And went twice in three weeks. I stand on a grassy hillside of Judge Williams Road. And I watch my papa lowered in the ground. Two weeks later, I watch my mamaw. And I hear the sound of the vault sealing over top of their casket and the sound of the dirt hitting the top of the vault. I've got one hope that's an empty tomb that their story is going to be his story repeated dead yes buried yes but from that very spot resurrected to everlasting life beloved Don't take the empty tomb away from me. It's all I've got. And when it comes my time, and I'm getting ready to leave this world, when my eyes see their final sight, my ears hear their final sound, my lungs breathe in air for the final time, and when my family members give me their final kiss and bid me adieu, I tell you what I'll be clinging to in that moment and in that hour. It's not the fact that I was a preacher. It's not the fact that I was a church member. It's not the fact that I did the best I could with what I had. That would lend me in hell. In that hour, in that moment, When I leave this world, know this, I will be leaving this world clinging to the empty tomb because that is my only hope. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. The only hope that this sinner has of getting the glory is that there was a Savior on a cross 2,000 years ago. he was buried and he was raised to life and he's alive now. That's my only hope. And I believe that with all my heart. my question to you is this: do you? Do you believe it? In order for you to be saved, listen, beloved, you must believe in the empty tomb. Paul says in Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and watch this, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, join a church, be baptized, give to local causes, and do the best you can, then you'll be saved. Is that what it says? That ain't what it says, is it? Here's what it says. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall, not might, not could, you shall be saved. I like that word shall. That means that salvation is by faith alone. That we're saved by faith alone. And so my question to you this morning is this. Do you believe in the empty tomb? Do you trust in the empty tomb? Has the empty tomb changed your life? If not, will you believe in it today? Will you believe the gospel today? Will you lay aside all of your deeds, all of your works, all your attempts to do better? And will you just honestly say that I must believe in the empty tomb and that alone for my salvation? You say, well, I believe it, but I've just never acted on it. But then the Bible says you need to profess it with your mouth. And so today what I want to ask you to do is if you believe it in your heart, then confess it with your mouth today. And Scripture says you can be saved. And the same thing Mary said 2,000 years ago, you by the eye of faith can say today, not visibly, but by faith, I have seen the Lord, I know he's alive. He is well. He is well. Do you believe? Let's pray. Father, as I come to you today in Jesus' name, I thank you for empty tomb. I thank you for a Savior who died for my sins, who was buried and three days later was raised to life everlasting. And I thank you for the promise that through faith and faith alone in that, that we can be saved. Holy Spirit, I ask now that you would do a work that only you're capable of doing. That you would apply the gospel message to hearts, open up hearts to the gospel. That people would believe the gospel, they would confess the gospel, that they would be saved today. Oh God, I don't know the... Causes for the doubt that, that, that grip different people's hearts. But I know you do. And I know that doubt is no match to the resurrected Savior in the empty tomb. So may, Father, today be the day that someone trusts Christ, calls upon Christ, believes in Christ, and is saved by Christ. And we'll praise you for it, Father, for you alone are worthy. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.